0: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Imagine finding yourself in the middle of a pristine landscape long untouched by human influence. On the brink of uncovering the remnants of a lost civilization largely unknown to the modern world a treasure you've been searching for over multiple decades and several expeditions worth of time, money, and effort. This is where Steve Elkins and his team of researchers and documentarians found themselves in February of 2015 after being airdropped into an unnamed valley in the heart of the Honduran rainforest, a place long since referred to as Portal del Infierno, or rather, the Gates of Hell. What they uncovered has since greatly contributed to Honduran's recovery of their ancient past. Their incredible efforts were captured on film in the documentary project, The Lost City of the Monkey God, released this year and currently in the festival circuit. And we have Steve Elkins himself on the show to speak on a special bonus episode of Into the Portal to follow up on our Lost City of the Monkey God series.
1: Hello and welcome back into the portal. We have got some amazing bonus content for you all today regarding our Lost City of the Monkey God series. That's right. Yes, so today we are speaking with none other than Steve Elkins, award-winning filmmaker and leader of the 2015 expedition to the Mosquito Rainforest to uncover the mystery of the Lost City of the Monkey God. Hi Steve, how are you?
2: I'm doing great, Amber. How are you?
1: I am incredible.
2: <laughs> Just to be talking to you. She's ecstatic
0: right now. She's kind of like vibrating a little bit. A
2: little bit, yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. You know, I do. I do want to say one thing. I appreciate you saying that uh, about the 2015 expedition. But that was only the. Uh, that was not the first expedition. This Correct. particular phase of the project started in 2012 when we did the LIDAR survey. Right. And it then took three years after that to organize the actual ground truthing expedition.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So plus
2: all, Plus, all that was preceded. By several expeditions I did in the 1990s. Right.
0: That's right. I mean, yes. that 1994 expedition, when you when you guys found those first kind of uh, remnants of some sort of civilization, mm. that, was, that was really and incredible. And that
1: carving, that stone carving. That's
0: right.
2: Right. That carving was uh, definitely an epiphany moment. <laughs> I mean, there had been room, well, obviously there was a legend circulating for a very long time. And I do have a background in the geosciences and in archaeology, at least when I was in school. And so I, I had an understanding of these things. And when we were in the jungle, far up in the mountains, far away from any human habitation, you could barely see 20 feet in front of you. And there's this boulder next to a small river with a carving of a man with a kind of a strange hat or headdress on or mask. A right. uh, stick and what looked like a gourd with seeds falling out of it. I immediately thought, why is this carving in a place like this? This meant there had been, had a, have been something going on in the past that's not obvious now. It probably was not the same environment that it is now. Right. So that was, for me, a big epiphany moment.
0: Totally.
1: Mm-hmm. Just the extent to which the landscape could have been previously modified by human populations, hey?
2: Exactly. And post natural sources like now, you know, our clim- climate is always changing. Mm-hmm. Climate is really just an aggregate of many weather events over time, and it's constantly changing. So in the past, we know that uh, the climate was different than it is now, and it may have been back then. And certainly humans modify the Earth wherever they go. In fact, I often say the role of humans in the ecology is we're terraformers, to use a word from Star Trek. Yeah. Wherever we go, we're changing the environment. In fact, all living things do that. We just do it to a great extent.
0: We, I, I absolutely love your Star Trek references that uh, popped up in a few of your, uh, your lectures and stuff like that. Uh, goodbye, Indiana Jones, and I'm going with Captain Kirk. <laughs> right. <laughs> absolutely <Exactly>. love that.
2: <laughs> I'm no idiot. <laughs>
0: So, I mean, okay, I got a question for you here, Steve, because we're really curious about sort of the beginning of your fascination with the Lost City, because we've, we've re- both read uh, Douglas Preston's book, and he discusses how you were, you know, already intimately familiar with this case, you know, from the mid-1990s and your 1994 expedition and all that kind of stuff, when you were already working with Ron Blom and NASA conducting these satellite surveys, but just how far back does your connection go with this story? Can you kind of recall the moment when you were remembered first hearing about the Lost City?
2: To 19, Well, in the 1990s, I was working in the television business. I was a cinematographer and an occasionally a producer, and I also was partners in a camera equipment rental company. So we okay. owned hundreds of cameras and editing systems that we rented out to other production companies and to the networks. Um, we also did a lot of what I call contract production, meaning, let's say you were a producer, you had the idea, you raised the money, and you say you want to do this TV show, you would contract my company to actually do the work. Very we didn't cool. didn't do the creative, but we did the actual work. Okay. I got bored with that and wanted to do something more exciting and more creative, so hmm. I put the word out. If anybody had any interesting ideas, particularly that dealt with science and venture, because that was my personal passion. I was introduced to an adventurer named Steve Morgan, who uh, had written 50 short stories about adventures he had done or wanted to do. I wrote them, and I fell in love with the one about Lost City Lucky guy. Steve then told me that, hey, I'm looking for it now, and it's really inexpensive to do uh, expeditions and productions in Honduras, plus I've a lot of great connections, I can arrange everything, you wanna do it? I said, yep, let's go. So we
0: organized it and went, not really knowing what I was in for, man. That's uh, <laughs> that's that's kind of crazy, really. I mean, kind of going in going in blind, so to speak, in mm-hmm. a way.
1: Exactly. You don't really hear about that too much in this century. It was more so in the early twentieth, uh, and then the nineteenth. Hey, you get that wave of exploration. That's, it, it just really brings to mind all that to me.
0: Totally. The the, the Percy Fawcett's of the world. So to, you're the modern day version. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you know, there there really is a lot of exploration going on, but you know the style changes because. Much of the obvious places have been explored. But there's a whole new wave of exploration happening. And I often tell this when I give lectures, particularly to younger people. My personal belief is that we are entering probably the greatest period of exploration in human history, ever. Why? Because of the advance of remote sensing technology. We are now able to see things we couldn't even have imagined just a few years ago, and even get more so as time goes on. So even though we think we've found everything and we've seen things, there are many things hidden that will soon be revealed to us through our technology.
0: That That's just so exciting to hear that yeah. come out of your mouth because, <laughs> I mean, yeah, a lot of people would say that we're past all that, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like that's that's sort of the, uh, yeah. that's something we come across a lot with our show is that people think everything's been discovered. Oh, so yeah. that's really, really great to hear.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, no, we're... I'm going to give you two
0: examples if I can. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, not, too, not too many years ago, um,
2: some archaeologists using remote sensing technology, and there's many remote sensing technologies, LIDAR like is just one of them, um, and they discovered that the Maya actually had very um, well-defined port cities along the Caribbean coast, and they had cargo cargo boats, and they traded probably all the way up to North America,
1: Wow. Ooh. And how did they find this? Because they were able to see the remnants of the wooden
2: structures, the chemical signatures that they live in in the soil, sub, sub surface from the uh, coastal waters and in the coastal areas in the land. They didn't build well, their port cities out of stone like they did in places like Coupon, but they built them out of wood and it perished. but leaves a signature that with these new technologies they can see it. So there's a whole new part of man culture People never knew. In fact, one of the archaeologists gave a lecture at the Smithsonian a number of years ago, and he dubbed the Caribbean the American Mediterranean. So you can figure out what he meant by that. Wow. The other thing, just a couple of years ago, one of uh, one of my one of the engineers on my team, a lighter engineer by his name Dr. Juan Carlos Fernandez Diaz, who happens to be Honduran but lives here in the States. Um, He's done a lot of these SIDAR surveys, and he was contracted from a consortium of scientists and governments to do a survey of the giant jungle in Guatemala. They wanted to see if this jungle had uh, lost cities or whatever was underneath it. No one, no one really knew. They knew there were these great lion sites all over the place, but no one knew what was in between. They just thought it was this impenetrable jungle. Right. Well, they did the survey in 2016, and last year they revealed what they found there was an article in National Geographic. And it turns out that the entire jungle was quite urbanized in the past. Wow. So this changes the population estimates of the ancient Mayan population by a tremendous degree. Right. I can guarantee you that we're finding out in places all over the world, and now even in polar areas with uh, melting glaciers. People were everywhere, and in greater numbers than were ever thought in the past. And again, why? Because our new technology allows us to see things we never could see just with our own five senses. Oh man, it's, it's really
1: incredible. I can't even. That was that's it. That's amazing. Those poor cities. I would love to look into that a little bit further. No Andy. kidding. Yeah, future that's episode. <laughs> definitely. No doubt. Yeah. Um, getting back to the, like, uh, just specifically, um, your expeditions and even just. Let's just jump to that moment of discovery when you had that dawning realization, you saw the results of the LIDAR, uh, from that moment to treading your first footsteps on that pristine, centuries-long, untouched ground of that unnamed valley. Uh, Just what are some of the ways that this venture has impacted you personally and your life overall?
2: Well, it's impacted me a tremendous amount. You know, first, I've been pursuing this since basically 1994, so that's a lot of
1: years. (laughs) And
2: most of my friends and family would hear me talk about it, and they'd tell me to shut up after a while. (laughs) Okay, all right, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) And to be able to say that I was not full of it, and I was actually right, Mm -hmm. was a great feeling of satisfaction, and still is. No kidding. In fact, my my my, my wife used to tell me, if you mention this again in this house, I'm leaving. <laughs> you know, now she's very ecstatic that I mentioned it.
1: Oh, that was one of my big questions. I was wondering how your wife feels today about all of this. Right, so she's yeah. kind of turned around. Hey?
2: <laughs> well, yeah, she turned around. She, she still kind of gets tired of hearing about it because it, it has taken over a part of our life, but she's very happy that it worked out and very proud that I was able to do this. Now, the other thing is that, um, when we saw the the LiDAR results, you know, I had a lot... Oh, well, let me turn off this phone. I'm sorry. Oh, that's
1: okay. <laughs> no worries. Uh,
0: We're usually dealing with uh, cats and dogs over on our end over here. We locked them all away okay, for this.
2: Yeah, I got it. <laughs> I took the battery out of this other phone line. Um, so, let's see, where was I? Oh, give me an here. I just lost track of that. Oh, was, whatever,
1: yeah. Uh, just with the LiDAR and when you saw those results. Oh, and Right.
2: Oh, yeah. When I saw the results of the LiDAR, I mean, I had a lot at stake here. We were spending a lot of money. I convinced a lot of people to go along with with the program here. I had arranged things with the Honduran government, so everybody was counting on me to produce something. So I was rather anxious, to say the least. Mm -hmm. And when the LiDAR engineer on one morning... I was actually having breakfast with Doug Preston comes running at, running at me saying, there's something in the Valley. You got to come over and look at it. My heart almost came out of my mouth. I was so excited. Oh, we man. ran there and then we saw it. And all of us are just like doing cartwheels. <laughs> okay. In fact, We went over there. We stayed at this really posh resort on the Island of Roatan, which is a story in itself. But immediately after looking at the, at the light, our images, we went over to the little bar on the beach and treated ourselves and, Toasted ourselves for quite a while. Yeah, no doubt. I'm very excited.
0: <laughs> Seriously. No kidding.
2: And then secondarily, three, three years later, actually organizing the ground expedition, which was really much more difficult than the LiDAR mission. There were so many safety issues, so many politics, so much logistics involved. And setting down in that helicopter on the site for the first time, To me, it was like going on holy ground. I mean, I couldn't believe Mm -hmm. that after all these years, here I was, standing on the place that I've been looking for for all these years, and I had all these scientists and all these people and everything happened. It was um, hard to describe the feeling.
0: No kidding. That's incredible. Uh, It's an experience that I wish, that I hope that I can have someday Mm -hmm. with something along these lines. I mean, we know that... This has had a huge impact, obviously, on Honduras, um, the legacy of of this lost city. Can you give us kind of the latest updates on the ground? Um, What's what's kind of going on there right now?
2: Sure. Um, Actually, the first uh, serious archaeological excavation started in early 2016 and is continuing to this day. They have different teams. Uh, First, we had an international team that went down there which was partially supported by National Geographic and mostly supported by the government of Honduras. And since then, it's predominantly been the Hondurans have really stepped up to the cause and have been sending their own teams out there for the last several years. Now, they go out for a few weeks at a time, they take a break, and then they have to break, for example, during the rainy season. It's Mm -hmm. pretty impossible to be there. And going back, in fact, um, they just came back, and I think they're getting ready to go again soon. They continue to find more and more things. They're surveying some of the other sites that we found and actually, I believe, uh, have been able to carbon date some things, which are turned out to be much older than we thought. But they haven't officially announced it, so I can't tell you exactly
0: what they did. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay, we're looking forward to that. Some other
2: things they found, which which, uh, they did announce, they found some round uh, stone spheres, which are similar to the ones... These enigmatic round spears that they found in Costa Rica a long okay. time ago. So, this immediately you say, obviously, there was some kind of cultural contact, which is not surprising. We think there was a lot of cultural contact over wide parts of uh, North, North America, South America, and Central America. Right. This is just one more piece in the puzzle. This work conti- is continuing. Right. In addition, we had noticed in our flyovers that a lot of this forest was being deforested illegally Mm -hmm. cattle ranches were being set up and it was, it was growing like a cancer. Right. Mm -hmm. While we were there, we realized, and so did all the scientists with us, that this rainforest was very special ecologically. And we kind of felt an obligation that now we had given all this publicity to it and we could realize what's going on. We had to try and steer the course of the future of this area to save it so further archaeological studies can occur, and more importantly, to save it for its ecology. Mm -hmm. So over the past couple years, we've finally been able to form a foundation, which just became official at the end of December, called the Kaha Kamasa Foundation. Kaha Kamasa is the PESH, which is one of the older indigenous groups, their word for a white city or Cielo Blanca. Right. Oh, beautiful. the, The mandate of the foundation is to continue to promote scientific research of both The archaeology and the natural environment, as well as figure out ways to keep conserving it. Because it turns out, after we had commissioned actually a biological survey of the area in 2017 with Conservation International, that there are species of animals they thought were extinct are still living there, and they found some new species. And it's a very special place in the wildlife corridor throughout Central America connecting North and South America. So if this rainforest, the mosquito, which is mainly in Honduras but also partially in Nicaragua, if it fails ecologically, there'll be a cascading effect of ecological fail- failures throughout that part of our hemisphere. There aren't and too many places like this left. So this is really a frontline battle and we now we've got several major NGOs from the United States involved in helping come up with a plan and enacting strategies to protect this area both archaeologically and biologically
0: well that's just such good news i mean
1: that really is because like when i read through um douglas preston's book he did make several uh, comments about just that, right? How how pristine, how untouched, and uh, and even like that. What was it? Those monkeys that were stationed above his uh, where he had camped out, and how um, normally those monkeys would never be seen around human populations. But because of the fact that this had been so untouched for so long, they just didn't even have a reference point, so they were completely fine with people being there. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. And, and what other examples were there? There was. Uh, Oh, all those different um, types of plants, uh, I believe. Wasn't there an ethnobotanist on that 2015 expedition? Yes, uh,
2: doc, Dr. Mark Plotkin from Harvard, a very famous ethnobotanist, by the way. Oh, right, Mark. Uh, he cool. was with us, mm-hmm. and he said this place is spectacular and has been a very big champion of what we're doing. In addition, you know, I mentioned that we have two NGOs working with the foundation now from the U.S. One of them is Wildlife Conservation Society, which also runs the Bronx Zoo. They've been around for well over a century. Very oh, wow. five star rated charitable organization. Mm-hmm. Very active in wildlife conservation, obviously. And Global Wildlife Conservation, whose chief biologist is a fellow named Russ Mittemeyer who is one of the world's foremost primate experts, and is up there with Jane Goodall. Wow. Oh, wow! So prior prior to getting all this together, nobody really paid much attention. But now these organizations have come and jumped in with both feet and are actively working with the Hondurans and the foundation. In coming up with strategies to preserve this place and keep it going. So, we're, we're very, that's a great satisfaction to know that our efforts have turned into something that's actually having a global legacy. Absolutely. To make the world a better place in some small way.
1: That is really incredible. And even just the fact that the Hondurans themselves have taken the initiative and really like contributed to this national legacy, I find that just yeah. so integral to that sort of rebuilding and just a way forward in the future. Um, one question I have, though, like you did mention that it's kind of been handed over to um, Honduran um, authorities like archaeologists and all those types of teams coming in. I do have a question, though. Is Chris Fisher still involved with the expedition or excavation, I should say? Um,
2: Not that, not that I know of at this time. I okay. mean, he was involved for quite a while mm-hmm. and uh, he unfortunately suffered he was infected with the leishmaniasis parasite right Right. had a tough time with it and i think he was kind of uh saying i'm not going back to the rainforest again after that (laughs) it was Uh. interesting because there are many people got it and some people they don't care they go back but some people got affected worse than others right Mm -hmm. um and so he has not been active in it although he's just recently published a scientific paper in PLOS, that's the organization that publishes papers that are free for anybody to look at, along mm. with some of his colleagues, and it was quite good. Mm. I don't have the name of it in front of me. We'll, oh, we'll have to go look that up. LiDAR survey. Mm-hmm. Plus, Chris is involved in his own LiDAR project, which he started before he got involved with me. Mm. Right. Mexico, he made a, a really brilliant discovery of his own.
1: Oh my gosh, yes. What? What team was that again? I I remember reading about that really briefly. Um, the name is a sticking. Uh,
2: I think the pronunciation is Angamuko. Oh, was, okay. Was site that was no, I believe the site was known, but they had no idea just how large it was. Okay. Or maybe it wasn't. You know, maybe they just suspected it. It's a much more open area, more more arid than the rainforest where we're in. And mm. he had used lidar before I did, and quite successfully. In fact, that's why I I had him come on the project because he was one of the very few archaeologists that understood lidar and had worked with it. Right. <laughs> Strangely, some of our critics had never done that. You mm. know, and they said, "Well, how come you're using Chris Fisher?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, because he's one of the very few people who know what the heck he's doing when it comes to interpreting lidar for archaeology.
0: Well, we're so glad that you teamed up with him, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I want to come back yeah, to I mean, the now.
2: Now, a lot of people are everyone's using it now. It's yeah, sort of technology de jour. (laughs) right
0: yeah super mainstream now i guess back when you guys were first using it i mean uh what was the what was the device that was like a coffee can size that was only like military grade and it was like crazy hard for you to get it out of the country in
2: in the airborne this is for airborne lidar
0: right right? Mm
2: -hmm. you can use lidar terrestrially in fact they make little handheld lidar units these days for a few thousand bucks they look like bobbleheads oh no way it's such an amazing technology you could walk into the room that you're in and in seconds, lidar scan everything in that room down to about a couple millimeters. <laughs> wow. And recreate it in three D on a computer or print it out on a three D printer or whatever you want to do with it. Wow. So it's it's quite amazing.
1: That's but phenomenal.
2: Surveying large areas from an airplane requires a much bigger, much more powerful, much more expensive machine. Right. And because you're flying in an aircraft that's flying fast, you have all these navigational things. So The airborne LIDAR units have what they call an IMU. It's an inertial measurement unit, like a guidance device. It's the same thing that they put in guided missiles. Right. So the missiles know exactly where they are in space. Crazy. So this technology is um, controlled by the State Department. We weren't allowed to take it out of the country without a special permit from the State Department, an export license, to use it. So they vet that to make sure it's not going to fall into the hands of people they don't want them to have it, of course. Enemies, so to speak. Right. It's uh. Anyway, so at the time, and it's it's less so now than in the past because this technology is it's all over the place now.
0: Totally. Um,
2: we had to get special permits to use this thing, and it was problematic at the time. Not that it was impossible to do, but bureaucracy. In our government and with various agencies, got in the way, and it almost we almost wound up having to scrub the mission because the permit got screwed up. Oh no! And fortunately, one of our other expedition members had a connection with a senator that had a lot of power. He made a phone call, and boom!
0: Well, thank goodness. We got the permit. <laughs> it seems like a lot of things like that kind of happened with the expedition, where where you hit road bumps, but then things kind of like fell into place like they were meant to be in a way, which is kind of nice.
2: Exactly. It's interesting you say that because we joke about it being the monkey guy, that he's playing with us. <laughs> and he always makes it work out. Even when we think we're, we're prone to failure and it's all falling apart, he, he uh, pulls a rabbit out of the hat each time.
0: That's uh, Yeah, totally. Oh, that's great. I, I wanted to ask you um, just to come back around to the, the leash and the dangers in the jungle, because I know you went out of your way to hire some British SAS, you know, guys who had experience in the jungle i was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about them and kind of like what what the people on the ground were most kind of worried about and things like that during the expedition
2: all right well you got two different questions there you got one about leishmaniasis and the other about the sas guys (laughs) true true (laughs) two different two different uh, topics there let's talk. go sas SAS. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: okay so when we're planning the ground expedition. We realized, you know, we had quite a few people and we wanted to make sure that we would stay alive. I mean, I've been in the jungle a lot of times, but I don't consider myself a jungle expert.
0: (laughs) Right. Fair enough.
2: So we wanted to make sure that regardless of whatever happened to us, whatever bad things might befall us, we had a fighting chance to survive. So we asked around different people and I was introduced to three. Former British SAS jungle warfare experts that had a company and they would go out and provide security for wealthy individuals or expeditions or did shows like Bear Grills and stuff like that to make right. survivor make sure that nobody died. And I <laughs> said, okay, these guys sound good. And I happened to uh, be on a trip for business to London where I went to meet them at the Special Forces Club, which is a whole nother story in itself. Okay. <laughs> Fabulous story. Right out of a James Bond movie.
0: Oh, we'll have to get you, you know, back on. three
2: guys, uh, who, you know, just see him on the street, you'd never think anything, just three regular guys. And they knew who I was, and they took me to this place where they they would not give the address. I had to walk there. They didn't blindfold me, though. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, maybe I could find it again.
0: Oh, there you go. And we go into this really cool
2: private club Just what you think it would look like is what it looked like. And we sat in this room with a fireplace and big sofas and had some drinks and some snacks. And we talked about going to the jungle and would they do it and could they do it. And in an
0: hour, I felt comfortable. They were comfortable. We made a deal and we hired them. Wow. And
2: they were probably one of the best decisions we made because they were able to help us set up camp and made sure everyone stayed safe. Mm -hmm. I I In fact, at the end of the expedition... Bill Bennett's and my partner in this, and I congratulated ourselves in that nobody got seriously hurt, yep. nobody di- nobody died, mm-hmm. everyone was fine, until six weeks later, we found out about Leishmaniasis.
0: Mm, indeed. Yes, yeah, bit of uh, a, <laughs> not, not the most pleasant surprise, obviously, and of course, Preston wrote extensively about his experience um, mm-hmm. having to deal with that. I mean, luckily, you didn't get it. Uh, I mean... No. Yeah, I mean, definitely something nasty, and I wasn't aware of it until we read his oh book. Oh, gosh, I know, right? So
1: mm-hmm. And the fact that it's even just spreading, eh? It's going up into North America. Texas and Alabama, did you say? That I, uh,
2: Texas that? and Oklahoma. has been endemic there for a couple of years. Uh, and I'm sure it's in other states, but they haven't found it. It's basically the parasite is, it needs the blood of a mammal and the gut of a female sandfly. For to complete its life cycle, mm-hmm. and okay. it's totally temperature dependent. It has a certain maximum minimum temperature range that it survives in. Doesn't matter if it's a desert or it's a rainforest. Mm. So in fact, leishmaniasis is quite prevalent in the Middle East. Okay, and much to uh, you know, we did, we knew that leishmaniasis was certainly a f- something that could be contracted in the jungle, but we considered it a low risk. We had no idea it was such a high risk. It turns out that. Many of our soldiers coming back from the wars in the East were contracting the Mideastern version of Leishmaniasis, uh, often referred to as the Baghdad boil or the Jericho Button. Oh, and around okay. there for thousands and thousands of years. Right. And right. the Department of Defense was very concerned about it, and so they started funding the National Institute of Health in Bethesda to study it, Where they still are. They have a research lab where they actually grow the parasite, and they're trying to figure out how to combat it because there are no real vaccines. Nor particularly pleasant um, cure uh, ways to put it in remission, shall we say? Right. Ugh, yeah. It's not not a pretty scenario.
0: No. no pretty nasty. For yeah.
2: some strange reason, some people are immune to it. Apparently, I am because I've never gotten oh. it in all the times I've been down there in the jungle. Crazy. But other oh, people mean. are not. <laughs> Nobody knows why.
1: Oh wow! Another mystery to uncover. Eh? Yeah, I guess no we're kidding. safe up in here in Canada for now. For
2: now. <laughs> for now. <laughs> well, <laughs> according to the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. If current climate trends continue, they expect it to reach the Canadian border by about 2050
1: or 2060.
0: Oh, dear. Oh dear! Well, we'll <laughs> be moving up to so the Yukon, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well,
1: we're getting down to the end of our time here. Um, one other question that we do have is obviously the status of the documentary, The Lost City, The Monkey God. Can you tell us about that? Is it in festival circuits right now, uh, where it's being featured, all that kind of thing?
2: Well, yes. Thank you for asking. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually in your neck of the woods a couple months ago at the Vancouver Film Festival.
1: Oh no, we missed it. And
2: then there was an, the same draft played in San Francisco at the Mill Valley Festival. Mm. But most importantly, it's been modified since then, and the final version is screening in Washington D.C. on March 16th. There's Very the cool. Environmental Film Festival DC. It's become quite a quite a popular festival. Oh, cool. and they're putting it in the Carnegie Institute for Science which is a fabulous location a great oh, theater, awesome. it's a beautiful building That's amazing. so we are actually uh, having a number of invited guests there so a lot of VIPs and plus the general public can get tickets and go see it go okay. see the film although oh, they can't oh. go to the reception unfortunately
0: uh, <laughs> um, and that that should
2: be a pretty big deal so March 16th you'll probably start hearing a lot about it and then where it will be shown next I don't know um, we're negotiating on a few deals right now, and I'm not really sure. My partner, Bill Benenson, is the one who's handling that.
0: Right, right. Okay. Well, that's just, we're so excited to see it. Uh, we're on pins and needles, mm-hmm. definitely. And, um, I mean, maybe we can even follow up with you after it's released and, uh, and have a little chat afterwards. We're just, we're, we can't wait to see it.
2: Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. I think uh, the two of you are great. And uh, happy to talk to you anytime. Oh well, thank you. Appreciate
0: we really that. appreciate that, Steve. It means a lot. We're um, you're you're the biggest interview we've had yet on Into the Portal, so uh, it's an honor.
2: It really is. Well, when Into the Portal becomes a globally recognized podcast, and you're famous, and everybody wants a piece of you, remember.
1: <laughs> oh, we will. <laughs> oh, we certainly will. Oh man, this has been incredible, Steve. Thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep in contact.
2: Please do. And I really appreciate your interest. Um, I'm always happy when people ask intelligent questions and really, you know, understand a lot of the story.
1: Oh, well, again, we really appreciate that. That's that's super flattering. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Awesome. Well, have a great rest of your day and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be in contact. All right. Thank you. Okay. Perfect. Bye Bye. Thanks. Bye.
0: Well, that was awesome.
1: That was crazy. That was really fun. <laughs> that
0: was super, super fun. Um, thank you again to Steve. Yes, and hopefully we'll be able to reconnect with him again in mm-hmm. the near future when the uh, film is available for everybody to see. Yes, and uh, we have a little tidbit about that at the very end of uh, yeah of this as well. But exactly, uh, we wanted to go through some of this because I mean that was um he had a lot to say. Yeah, and uh, yeah. First, really... first and foremost, uh, whoops, because uh, in our <laughs> in our two-part series, we uh, said that Steve was in his 70s, and he's actually younger, so that was it like... It was a
1: guesstimation. <laughs> guesstimation.
0: And my bad. Um, <laughs> my bad. I, I, well, did you pull that from Wikipedia, and it was, wasn't quite right or know. something? Or anyway, yeah. our math was way off, so we apologize, Steve, and uh, yeah. he was 68, not in his 70s, and uh, mm-hmm. still rocking it hard.
1: we turning so, 68, I think. So.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, upcoming mm-hmm. birthday. Happy early birthday. <laughs> um, the other thing that he mentioned that was really interesting was that Chris fisher um recently published a paper Mm -hmm. that we are really excited to look into so we're gonna dig that up
1: i was just on his website and i didn't find the paper quite yet but once we find that we'll post it on our socials Mm -hmm. for you guys so yeah so we can all take a look at that one that seems super fascinating. What else? Okay. What was one of the main things that was just like stood out to you about that?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, he definitely left me with, uh, well, all of us with uh, the cliffhanger of his juicy story with hiring mm. the SAS guys at uh, the club <laughs> in the UK. That yeah. sounded super interesting. I really want to get that. So.
1: Oh, another thing we didn't get out of him too, was any stories about Bruce Heineke, which would have right. been awesome, but whatever. You maybe know, next um, time.
0: <laughs> yeah. Save it for a later date. And mm-hmm. I really, yeah, I really look forward to reconnecting with Steve. But But, um, I think, I don't know. Like, I I think that that was just, I don't even, it was just really, it was just really neat to just get it, his perspective, you know, straight from him. Um, even though we've watched the Ted talks, we've, you know, Mm -hmm. we've, we've watched some stuff of his, you know, and we've read Preston's book, super thorough, Mm -hmm. but just to like hear how much it really has impacted his life and still does. And just like the legacy that's continues on in Honduras, because if it wasn't for this expedition... Then, then these these protective measures wouldn't be happening. And it's just yep. so awesome. Mm-hmm. It's, man, it, it's a really good, it's a good feeling, you know? It's it one is, of those uh, yeah, it is exactly good feel that. stories.
1: Oh, yeah. And I feel like even at the end of his TEDx talk, he really affirmed that notion that, like, you you never really know how little or how much you can impact the world. But if you just sit back and just think about it or just talk about it and don't do anything about it, then you're not contributing and you never know what can happen when you just decide to commit yourself to something. And I think that's just incredibly inspiring. And
0: it makes me want to go searching for our own um, lost things, doesn't it? I mean, we're always trying to do that in a metaphorical way with the show. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about going into the field Mm -hmm. ourselves. Um, But uh, I mean, he made that comment about how we're heading into an era where we're more likely to make these discoveries when Mm -hmm. we've been typically told the opposite
1: well that's kind of yeah that's really that to me is so inspiring to hear that we're entering this next great age where we're not just probing in the dark seeing less than 20 feet ahead of us we're seeing everything from above and like that's an incredible new perspective to bring to the field and it's kind of funny because like the way that he talked about it now is that this is widely used in the field. Like, this is the new norm. And if yeah. you're not a part of that, then you're kind of living in the antiquated past kind of thing in mm-hmm. the field. And it was kind of funny, right? Because of because of those naysayers that were around initially. I'm sure they're still around. I'm sure there's still people that would say whatever. Like, oh, you have to do the ground truth thing. But it's funny, right? Because he is doing that. And, exactly. And, and now Honduras is doing that, the, which is incredible. The
0: entire... The, the suggestion that that's not included when you just because you start start with lidar and with this any other ground penetrating radar technology yeah. is absurd because it's literally just cutting the time i i I mean the figure of speech would be in half but it's way more than that and then you and then once you're actually on the ground in the significant areas instead of wasting your time you are just doing the same the same stuff the the hardcore stuff on the ground which Mm -hmm. is what that team did yeah and oh man other than the fact that you could contract leash (laughs) leash maniasis (sighs) which just sounds horrible it does just the worst and i mean
1: not we only, didn't really get into that too no, much. No, I on mean, we didn't series. get into detail mm. because
0: he made the comment about how he has like an immunity to it, that's which is incredible. fascinating, right? Mm. You have to wonder if it's not really the cure isn't the right word because it's a parasite, I guess, right? But the, um, the anti, whatever, anti leash antidote. <laughs> antidote of some kind it would lie yeah. in people that have this like oh, natural buildup against it, possibly. But I mean, like, we didn't, of course, we didn't get into it, but mm-hmm. the reason why it isn't as researched and funded and all this kind of stuff is because uh, right now it only affects people in countries that don't have a ton of cash. So that's not really
1: true because it is in the states now. So
0: slowly, but surely there will be more and more and more funding and research because it will start to affect more and more people that, uh, the CDC has. Yeah. Anyway.
1: And exactly that, even this example in this case will really highlight that and bring it into the limelight, exactly. possibly, and attract more funding. So, exactly. you know, maybe there is an upside to it.
0: Definitely, what was uh, what stood out to you? <laughs>
1: what stood out. <laughs> I mean, I gotta ask you, you asked oh, me, it was oh, the SAS. I, I got a question. My I, I, hands up. Oh, Amber. hands up. Okay. Oh, yes. Amber, yeah. Um, when uh, Steve was giving us some examples of how uh, this new technology is being used in other areas, and he mentioned those port cities. Oh my
0: goodness. Along yes. Along the
1: coast, that were mine, right? That, that Correct? Yes. Okay, that would, to me, kind of brings up this whole new layer of connectivity because he even mentioned, right, how this this goes all the way up and down north and, and south and Central America, right? These people were highly interconnected. Yes. And it makes you wonder. Just how far their technology could have brought them.
0: Oh well. <laughs> are we heading back to the uh, yeah. dot
1: dot dot? <laughs> Everyone
0: knows uh, what my where my interests lie.
1: Exactly. But
0: um, no, that really is fascinating. I would love to try to trace some of those trade routes, um, especially on the west coast here, like close to where we are, mm-hmm. where I remember back in elementary school, or not necessarily like middle school level, learning about like the Haida
2: mm-hmm. um,
0: on the coast and their crazy canoe, like dugout boats and stuff, and they maybe would have had trade connections as well with some of these port cities that had way more massive populations than originally expected. And it's just so Mm -hmm. crazy. There's so much more to be discovered. I just want to get my... I just want to go shopping for my... My Indiana Jones gear and like go surfing. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Your indie gear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there, buddy. okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyways, I wanted to touch on, before we wrap this up here, just the updates on Douglas Preston's book. Right. Because we got a quick email from Steve after the interview, and he just mentioned that Doug's book has actually once again become one of the uh, bestsellers on the Wall Street um, list just this past week. For a nonfiction ebook, so now okay. it's an ebook guys. So if you prefer to get your knowledge that way, mm-hmm. um, it's high, it's a lot more accessible to people that way. But honestly, cool. I love the copy we have. The
0: well, we've had it for a while now, right? Like a yeah, few years. It's well and it's it's traveled around. I think it's come camping with us. And uh, we've both read it like a few times. And it's mm-hmm. got the, the pages are yellowing a little bit. And I, I just love that. So it's got that look. <laughs> it's starting to get that look. It's perfect for for that, for Douglas Preston's books. So.
1: It's incredible. He's had a lot of success with it. And, and I'm, I'm really happy for him. Apparently, this book has already been published in 18 countries. And it's going to be in China pretty soon. Wow. So that's a huge market. That's so incredible. that's going to be great.
0: I think maybe the next thing I would... Be to try to reach out to, to Douglas Preston, that would be really, really fun.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. Um, so I guess the only other thing to mention too is the fact that there is this upcoming uh, showing of the Lost City of the Monkey God documentary in the DC area. So. Right. In Washington, Unfortunately, we won't be able to attend. <laughs> a, little, a little far
0: away for us. I can't <laughs> yeah. believe we, uh, you know, we've been so crazy busy and we missed it in Vancouver. That would have been the closest no! for us. Um, that was so... <gasps> but can't wait to see it whenever we do get a chance. Yeah. I don't know if we do have any listeners out in the DC area, but if we do, um, hit us up if you have the opportunity to check us out. Oh my gosh, out.
1: yes. And we actually have a link from Steve himself and we're going to post that in our show notes. So if you want to check it out and go see and buy tickets to this and uh, yeah, you can check it out here. It's... I'll even just read it out here. It's just um, W... T-T-P-S, um, and then colon forward slash forward slash D-C-E-F-F dot org, forward slash film forward slash lost, lost dash city dash monkey dot or dash god.
0: Very thorough, like. Amber. Very thorough. Look at, look at that. We will post it. <laughs> yeah, and, we will uh, post it. <laughs> um, even if you just get the first part there with the dot org, I think like it'll show probably the total list of what's going on. But It's, it's not supposed the dot to be, coms, it's the dot orgs. <laughs> yeah, you mostly stick with the dot govs. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, and if anybody knows what that's from, maybe we'll throw you a sticker or something like that. Show us how... <laughs> that's a little
1: <laughs> Easter egg right there. But I mean, you can also go Go and check out a preview of the documentary. Yes, and that's just at um dot I believe that's the correct link. But if you even if you just googled Benison Productions Lost in the Monkey God, it's gonna Definitely. pop up right away.
0: And it's a great little mm-hmm. tease. Um, I'm, I yeah, I it's just, like
1: five minutes long, and it's yeah. like oh, it just makes you want to watch it. Yeah, it's more
0: than just a trailer, but it doesn't like it's it's not like a, I mean, when I say trailer, you think like Hollywood trailer or whatever, right? But it's just. It, it's, oh man, you're hooked when you it's watch it. It's everything you're so. hoping for. I think, more. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess that kind of wraps this up for this bonus, uh, bonus content that we are so thrilled to be able to offer you guys. Yep. And, um, thank you so much for listening and, uh, give us your feedback. Let yeah. us know what you think about, um, the, this search for the lost city and the ongoing excavations and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And if you've read Preston's book and everything else that we've yeah. been talking about, so email us into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. We're at into the portal podcast on Facebook and Instagram. So come hang out with us on the, there we love chatting with you guys and you can hit us up on twitter as well at into the portal one that's the number one Mm -hmm. so yeah come chat with us on there as well so until sunday night
1: indeed